0: This is a work of fiction. Honest! Ragbag presents Endless Impossible Written and performed by Frank Burton Endless Impossible will also be available as a book the fourth in the Ragbag series Buy a copy for each of your friends. You'll be the talk of the town. Later on, we'll enter the footnotes section. That's the optional extra content for the hardcore members of the Ragbag Alliance. Let's continue with Endless Impossible. Now, let's talk about corporal punishment. Two years before the events I've been describing, in 1987, Corporal punishment was officially banned in UK state schools. I was seven years old. I still remember seeing classmates occasionally being hit on the back of the hand with a wooden ruler. It didn't look like it caused much physical pain. It was a form of ritual humiliation, I suppose. No doubt if I'd been born ten years earlier, I'd have witnessed a few proper beatings, maybe even taken one myself. If I'd been born ten years later... It's likely I'd be utterly bewildered by the suggestion that in the recent past, a teacher could legally slap a child across the face in the middle of a lesson, and that was totally normal. As it stands, I was born at the tail end of the era of corporal punishment. If I'm still here in 60 years' time, I'll be one of the very last people on earth who remembers that this was once a thing. I called it the era of corporal punishment just then, didn't I? That's a funny way of putting it, right? The use of the word era suggests that corporal punishment was the main thing that was going on during those years. Obviously there were other things going on, but I'd just like to draw your attention to the significance of that one change in British law and the impact that it had. I didn't appreciate any of this at the time, of course. I don't think anyone actually explained it to us. One minute kids were being physically assaulted and the next they were politely told to go and stand in the corner and cool off. Kids were routinely beaten at home by their parents at this time too. Then one day, I don't know when, but presumably sometime after the teachers weren't allowed to hit kids, parents stopped doing it too. And lots of things changed from that point on. I was going to say everything and then stop myself like a pro. Not everything changed. Arguably the very concept of everything changing is completely unfathomable. What would custard turn into, for example? Lots of things changed, though all because of that one decision in Parliament in 1987. Parents had to redefine their relationship with their kids. My parents didn't, but that's because they never bothered hitting me. This is probably the bleakest confession I will ever commit to audio, but I clearly remember being disappointed on hearing other kids' stories about getting slapped around by their mums or their dads for misbehaving. Why didn't my parents do that? Didn't they love me at all? considered in the context of the society at the time this isn't too much of a crazy thought it's easy to forget this fact but many kids were struck violently by parents who loved them dearly and firmly believed that they were doing what was best and who knows maybe they were right maybe physical violence can be a true expression of love in the right context this observation would probably make a lot more sense in 1987 when hitting your kids was just something you did context is everything i guess The fact of the matter is, my parents didn't love me. I can't help thinking I was absolutely right. If my parents had cared about my well-being a little bit more, they'd probably have beaten me black and blue, and maybe I'd be happier then, I don't know. Perhaps one of the reasons I was unable to relate to children's literature in 1989 was that children's stories were yet to catch up with the fundamental cultural shift which had been kick-started by an Act of Parliament two years previously. Even Roald Dahl whose name was synonymous with literary success at the time, had been rendered somewhat redundant by this new, softer, more kind-hearted society. And not just because he was an unrepentant anti-Semite. Dahl's books belong to a world in which violent punishment lies at the heart of everything, usually in the form of psychotic adults dishing out creative doses of poetic justice. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is packed full of eye-for-an-eye retributions against misbehaving children for Weirdly innocuous crimes such as chewing gum or watching TV. The book already contained grossly outdated material when it was first published in 1964, including colonial African caricatures that had somehow slipped through the editor's net. Arguably the entire book was rendered obsolete the following year, when the UK government abolished the death penalty. An eye for an eye was officially no longer the way we did things. Published in 1988, one year after corporal punishment in schools had come to an end, Dahl published Matilda, a book which relies heavily on the existence of corporal punishment in schools. Miss Trunchbull, the sadistic schoolmistress, makes a fine villain for sure, but she was an anachronism from the start. In the 21st century, the character bears no resemblance whatsoever to an actual schoolteacher. My mum bought me a copy of Roald Dahl's Matilda for Christmas shortly after its release. I couldn't get past the first few pages. This wasn't because of the corporal punishment stuff. I'd stopped reading by then. If you've read it yourself, you may recall that Matilda was a child genius who escaped from her neglectful parents by spending hours at the local library after school. It's relatable so far. But then, which author does little four-year-old Matilda fall in love with, devouring his books from cover to cover? Charles Dickens. What? Really? I'm not saying Great Expectations isn't a good book. I tried reading it myself as a kid. Like Matilda, I was intelligent enough to understand most of the words. But without a basic understanding of the nuances of 19th century manners and customs, the book just didn't make any sense. Say what you like about Ed McBain. Sure, some parts of his books would be rightly condemned as misogynistic today, but they educated me in a way that Dickens never could. Perhaps my familiarity with the police procedural genre helped in some way when it came to extracting a confession from Vanessa. If I hadn't done that, I probably wouldn't have anything more to tell you. I was quietly pleased with myself walking home from the bookshop that day, having learned Vanessa's name and finally heard her story. If I somehow could have predicted the chain of events I'd unwittingly set in motion that afternoon, perhaps I'd have been even more pleased. Or horrified, even with hindsight it's difficult to say. Speaking of hindsight, it's only just occurred to me now I'd told my dad all about my suspicions about Vanessa's shop and the fact that there might be some illegal activity going on there. We even discussed the possibility that she might have been a drug dealer. Still, he was perfectly happy for me to carry on going to the bookshop every day. This was the same man who'd previously advised me, and I quote, all you have to do is stay away from drug dealers. I should put that in context. I'd heard a few stories about the sudden rise in local gun violence. I never watched the news, but I scanned the headlines every time I passed the paper shop. If the Manchester Evening News was anything to go by, there must have been an armed criminal on every street corner. One morning at breakfast, I asked my dad if he could drive me to school. I thought you liked walking, he said. I used to, I said, but now I'm worried about getting shot. Shot, he said. Have you seen the news lately? I wouldn't pay attention to any of that, he said. I mean, yeah, sure, there's guns on the streets, but it's only criminals shooting other criminals. I'm not saying these people deserve to die or anything, but it sounds like all these guns are helping with crime prevention. Every time a drug dealer gets shot, that's one less drug dealer on the streets. Brutal business, but there you go. What did they shoot me by mistake? On your way to school? I very much doubt it, son. Like I say, it's all just drug dealers killing other drug dealers. All you have to do is stay away from drug dealers. Easy, right? I'm aware there have been times when my dad has shown me something resembling affection. Like the time he defended me against Uncle Claude's discouragement, or the time he said I was free to share my innermost thoughts with him. He definitely said that, after all, I can't deny it. My best explanation is, that's just the way he felt at the time. People say all sorts of things in the heat of the moment. As I've said, I don't think my dad disliked me. But despite occasional flashes of evidence to the contrary, he didn't like me either. He was indifferent. That's all there is to it. On the bright side, I suppose there are worse positions a parent can take. My mum was indifferent too, but in a slightly more complex way. Her attitude towards me depended entirely on what mood she was in. I don't particularly wish to dwell on the bad times. I'd rather tell you about the time me and my mum watched Top of the Pops. I figured out exactly when it was, 29th of June, 1989. It was seven in the evening, usually around the time my mum went off to bed, leaving me to sit on my own in silence. I wandered into the living room, expecting it to be quiet and empty. Instead, the TV was on. I'd forgotten we had a TV in the house. No one ever turned it on. Now my mum was sitting in front of it on the couch, a glass in her hand, bobbing gently up and down to the theme tune. What are you watching? I said. Top of the Pops, she declared. I forgot all about this thing. Haven't seen it for years. What's it about? Music. Come and see. I sat down next to her. This is probably going to sound like a cliché or a lie or both, but I spent the following 30 minutes with my mouth hanging open. I'd heard pop music before, here and there, in the background, in shops, or occasionally the teachers at school would blast out a couple of contemporary tunes during dance classes. But I'd never seen pop music. Before that moment, sitting beside my mum on the couch, I'd never really thought about the concept of music as an enjoyable experience. Yet, here it all was. The dry ice, the funny costumes, the crazy dance moves, the sheer relentless energy... I've forgotten most of the content now. I've just rewatched it all on YouTube for the first time since that first viewing. I don't remember that particular Holly Johnson song or the Queen video with the band playing on the back of an express train. I do remember Soul to Soul's Back to Life being that week's number one. I didn't quite understand what the charts were. My mum explained. So it's all about who sold the most records, I said. It's as simple as that, she said. Seems a bit unfair. Just because one record sells more than another one, that doesn't make it a better record, right? That's true, she said. Then Soul to Soul came on with their number one single, and kind of proved me wrong. It was easily the best song of the night and remains a classic to this day. The people got it right, I said. They've bought the most copies of the best record. It looks like the system works. It doesn't always, she said. But yes, you're right, this is a good song. The chorus kicked in for the second time, and we'd already picked it up from hearing it once. We sang along, me and my mum, our arms in the air. We applauded at the end, like we were right there in the TV, partying with the rest of them. It looked like a lot of fun, and for that moment, I was happy right where I was. Then my mum turned off the TV, drained her glass, and went off to bed. The next day, instead of going to Vanessa's shop, I went to Woolworths and bought Soul to Soul's Back to Life, plus a couple of other discs I like the look of. I didn't think we had an actual record player in the house, but I managed to find an old turntable with a couple of speakers in one of my dad's junk boxes. I set the machine up in the living room, on top of the old photocopier my dad had brought in as a substitute for a coffee table. I put Soul to Soul on first, cranking up the volume to see how loud it could get. My mum came stumbling in from the kitchen, clutching her head. What on earth are you doing, Frank? Turn that thing off. It's that song that we like, Mum, I said. Song, she said. Soul to soul, I said. I don't understand. The one we watched last night. Last night? Top of the Pops? She carried on looking confused. The music appeared to be making her head hurt, so I turned the volume down, then turned it off altogether. I watched Top of the Pops, she said quietly. I must have been. What? I said. Nothing, she said. Do you not remember? I don't, she said. I was going to say I must have been very tired. She removed her hand from her forehead. Look, she added. I don't mind you playing that thing, but could you set it up in your bedroom where I can't hear it? Okay, I said. My mum and I never shared any musical experiences after that. But that was okay. Without really meaning to, my mum had helped me discover a whole new world. Consequently, my visits to Vanessa's bookshop grew less and less frequent. I had £500 in my bank account, and I finally had something to spend it on. I must have bought a hundred records over the weeks that followed. I was yet to develop a proper sense of what was good or bad. I pretty much liked everything I saw on Top of the Pops, which I watched religiously, at least for the next couple of years. Sometimes I wish I could return to that old frame of mind before I figured out what the clichés were and developed a particular taste for very specific types of sound. Imagine being able to turn on the radio and feel good about whatever happened to be playing at the time. For the time being at least, I fell in love with everything I heard. I liked Kylie Minogue. I liked Morrissey. I liked Deacon Blue. I liked Guns N' Roses. I liked Bros. I liked MC Hammer. I liked Sinita. I liked Jive, Bunny and the Master Mixers. I liked Michael Jackson. I liked The Proclaimers. I liked Prince. I liked New Kids on the Block. I liked music. Thanks to my mum, the house was no longer silent. The day after Vanessa told me about her business dealings at the bookshop, I walked straight home after school. I didn't have time to read anything today. I started writing a letter to Dennis this was going to be a much longer one than usual. A few days earlier, I'd sent another brief message which said something like, an umbrella term is an expression that covers lots of things. In much the same way, an umbrella covers a person from the rain. Now, think about all the types of umbrella you can buy. Umbrellas for the sun, umbrellas for the rain, umbrellas for playing golf, tiny little umbrellas for the top of a drink. All of these objects are represented by just one word, the word umbrella. That's right! The word umbrella is itself an umbrella term. I wasn't particularly pleased with this observation, but it was the best I could manage at the time. Now I finally had a proper story to share with my journalist friend. It probably sounds like I was on the verge of breaking my promise to Vanessa. She'd made it very clear that I should never tell another soul about what went on in that shop. I'd explicitly told her I wouldn't. Actually, if you'll recall, I said I won't speak a word about it. Technically, writing to someone about it wasn't breaking my word. Call me a snitch if you like, but hey, I was nine years old. I thought I was being rather ingenious. The story took me a couple of days to complete. I stayed home late both nights, ensuring I recorded every possible detail. I even included Vanessa's password, which, let's be honest, was an extremely disloyal move. But again, I thought I was being clever about it. I'd seen newspapers placing asterisks in the middle of swear words, which apparently made them less sweary. I copied the technique in the letter to Dennis, writing B star 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 Y, instead of Bermondsey. In hindsight, I probably shouldn't have mentioned that it was a district in South London, not the most difficult code to crack. I sent out the letter as soon as it was completed. I received a reply a couple of days later, thankfully addressed to Frank Burton Jr., Dennis had simply written, Frank, that's a hell of a tale. Perhaps we could talk about it on the phone sometime soon. You can reach me on my office line most of the time. At seven o'clock that evening, my mom had gone off to bed, leaving me the house to myself. I wondered what Dennis meant by most of the time. Would he still be in the office? I dialed the number on the bottom of the letter. A man answered the phone with the words, Dennis Gleason. I'd never heard anyone answer the phone with their full name before. I always found it odd that my mum always answered a call by reciting her own phone number instead of saying hello. Maybe Dennis's version was the proper way to do things. Anyway, I was a little thrown off by the idea of someone saying their full name as a greeting, so despite the fact that Dennis had clearly identified himself, I began my side of the call with the words, Hello? Is that Dennis? Don't tell me, he replied. Frank Burton Jr. That's right, I said. Thank you for calling. There was something else slightly odd about Dennis's telephone manner. From the tone of his letters, I was expecting him to talk like a BBC newsreader. Maybe it was just the phone line, but Dennis's voice had a fuzzy, distorted quality to it, as though he was speaking from the inside of a fish tank. No problem, I said. Thank you for the correspondence. I must say, Frank, that last letter of yours was a fine piece of writing. Have you shown it to anyone else? School teachers? I'm sure they'd be impressed. Oh, I couldn't do that, I said why not? You have a rare skill. Yes, but I couldn't possibly spread this story around. I shouldn't really have shown it to you either. I'm glad that you did. It feels like a broken promise though. I told Vanessa I wouldn't say a word to anyone. Writing it down was a loophole, I suppose. But if I showed it to my teachers, they'd probably have a thousand questions and they'd definitely call the police. Right, said Dennis. So you're saying, sorry Frank, it appears that I have a thousand questions too go ahead. So you're saying this story is true? Didn't I make that clear? I said. Sort of, he said. I assumed it was fiction because, well, it's such an unlikely thing to have happened. I actually thought it was rather clever incorporating yourself into the story. Clearly I've got the wrong end of the stick. You believe me, right? I said. Oh yes, he said quickly. Unlikely things happen all the time. It happened because of you, actually, I said. The advice you gave me about noticing things, asking questions, that's how I found all of these things out. You've done very well indeed, he said. It's a shame you can't publish it somewhere. I mean, maybe you can, some day, when you're older, when Vanessa's shop has closed down and life has moved on. Thanks for saying that, I said. I was worried you might tell me to call the police yourself. You're an intelligent young man, he said. I don't know you very well yet, but my instincts tell me that you know right from wrong. In this case, I think we can both agree, reporting your friend to the police would be the wrong thing to do. From the way you described her, it sounds like Vanessa knows right from wrong too. I'm glad that you understand. Dennis's strange wobbly voice grew stranger and wobblier the more excited he became. He said, What's interesting is, you've only uncovered a small part of the story. So far, all we know is there's a woman running a bookshop, which acts as a front for her illicit sideline in Identity fraud." There's so much else we don't know. How did Vanessa get into this line of work? Are there other people involved? And that's just the start. There are a whole host of stories to be uncovered here. All these people she helps move on to a different life. I'd rather not try and investigate that, I said. I'm guessing these people have been through some horrific experiences. Oh, I see what you mean, said Dennis. Sorry, I was thinking too much like a newspaper man. Horrific experiences are my bread and butter. To be completely honest, I wish they weren't. I wish there were other stories to tell sometimes, but there aren't. Not for money anyway. Believe me, I've tried. The consequences were disastrous. Luckily for you, Frank, you don't need to worry about earning a living. If you don't want to intrude on other people's misery, you don't have to. You can tell stories in which no one gets hurt. You can find things that are interesting to you. You don't even need to share these stories with anyone else. I'm glad you shared Vanessa's story with me. It feels like a privilege because I know that no one else is going to hear it. For that reason, the story has its own kind of purity. I had no idea what Dennis was talking about, but felt awkward asking what he meant. I had no convenient means of changing the subject. All I could say was, ''What did you try?'' ''How do you mean?'' he said. ''You said you tried telling a different kind of story and the consequences were disastrous. What happened?'' Dennis made a noise which almost sounded like laughter. ''Are you OK?'' I said. ''It's funny!'' he said. I haven't thought about this for a while. I should think about it more often, because it's one of my greatest achievements. It almost destroyed my career, and it ruined me financially, but still, I'm very proud of it. What is it? I said. I wrote a book a couple of years ago. It's the only book I've ever managed to complete. It's called Mind in the Clouds. It's all true. It's about this group of rainbow hunters who... Rainbow hunters? I expect you haven't heard that term before. Most people haven't, but they... well, that's what they do. "'Hunt Rainbows.' "'I'll send you a copy, Frank. "'I have several of them lying around. "'No one else is going to read the damn thing, "'so I'd love to share it with someone.' "'Sounds very interesting,' I said. "'That's enough about me,' said Dennis. "'Tell me more about your writing, Frank. "'What's your next story? "'What are you working on?' "'Nothing yet,' I said. "'I'm just going to carry on following your advice. "'I'll be keeping my eyes and ears open.' "'Great to hear,' he said. "'Has anything else sparked your interest lately?' Anything unusual you feel compelled to investigate? This would have been the perfect opportunity to say, yes, my teacher believes herself to be an alien being on a mission to spread a message of peace to humankind. Instead, I said, not really, not yet. This was perfectly true. Dennis had asked me if anything else had sparked my interest lately. I just wasn't particularly interested in Miss Angel's claims about lost children and flying triangles. Clearly, this was science fiction. I didn't like science fiction. I liked stories about serial killers being eaten by zombies in America. It wasn't until the following day that I had chance to reflect on my first ever conversation with Dennis. Actually, chance to reflect is probably the wrong expression to use. As a prepubescent, I was happily unaware that in a few short years, analysing my day-to-day interactions with my fellow human beings would be a full-time occupation... For now, conversations were just things that happened. There was something different about that phone call with Dennis. Although we would never spoken before, and I didn't even know what he looked like, I felt like I was talking to my oldest friend. At playtime, while standing on the goal line, watching my classmates kick a ball at each other, it occurred to me that I didn't really have any friends. Not friends of my own age, Anyway. In recent days, the content of my conversations with Dennis and Vanessa had been more meaningful than any encounter with a child my own age. I didn't feel particularly pleased or disappointed by this realisation. If anything, I was grateful for my position as goalie, the perfect cover for an outsider who didn't wish to draw attention to himself. I wish I could say the same for my silent partner, whatever his name was, sitting on the wall, watching the world go by. Mostly he was simply ignored. Sometimes the girls took pity on him, and invited him to join in their games of, you know, whatever it was girls played. Occasionally, thankfully not very often, kids would throw tennis balls at him, or tell him to stop sitting there staring into space. Once I stood on the goal line, watching as a gang of younger boys picked my silent partner off the wall, carried him across the football pitch and hurled him into a bush. They ran off laughing, leaving him lying there. I wondered if he'd been seriously injured. Still, somehow I couldn't bring myself to pop over and check he was still alive. Don't get me wrong, I felt bad about leaving him there. I often wonder what might have happened if I'd intervened in this random act of cruelty. Maybe I'd have become a better person and lived a different life. But I didn't help him, so here we are. One afternoon, halfway through an entirely unmemorable geometry lesson, Miss Angel said, Can anyone tell me why the equilateral triangle is the perfect shape? Because all the sides are equal, someone said. She's talking about the aliens again, someone else whispered. I was actually talking about shapes, said Miss Angel warmly. But while we're on the subject of the aliens, can anyone remember our special name for them? The Mirror, called out my silent partner. And why do we call them that? Because they're just like a mirror image, she replied, without hesitation. They look like us, but really, they're our direct opposite. Very good, said Miss Angel, then quickly turned away from him, addressing the girl who'd answered her initial question. You're right, by the way, she said. The equilateral triangle is the perfect shape because all three sides are equal. That's one reason why the mirror's spaceships are shaped this way. Plus some other technical reasons concerning aerodynamics, but that's a subject for another time. Why is it better than a square, though? I said quietly. Good point, Frank, replied Miss Angel, her smile remaining fixed. Squares have equal sides too, of course, but at least from the mirror's point of view, a square has far less symbolic value. The mirror's philosophy is that all things are equally important, all living things, all non-living things, and all invisible things. These are the three points on the equilateral triangle. What's that, Miss? I said. What are those three things again? My silent partner jabbed me in the ribs with his pencil, presumably some low-level retribution for the crime of questioning authority. To be fair, I'd let him to die in a bush recently, so perhaps this made us even. Point number one, said Miss Angel patiently, is living things, by which I mean anything that's alive, from bacteria to blue whales. And people, of course. People are part of this category. So you're saying people are equal to bacteria? All living things are equal, she said. So, yes, people are equal to bacteria and blue whales. The next point on the triangle is non-living things. That means physical objects that aren't alive. Like a plant pot, someone said. That would be one example, said Miss Angel. There are, of course, many more. Skateboards, someone else said. Let's not list all of the non-living things, she said. But, yes, a skateboard is another example of a non-living thing. And then there's the third point, invisible things. Can anyone give me an example of an invisible thing? A ghost, someone said. Okay, said Miss Angel. Personally, I don't believe in the existence of what you might call ghosts, but interestingly, I think you're absolutely right. Ghosts may not exist in the real world, but the concept of ghosts does. That's what I mean when I say invisible things. I'm referring to anything you can name that doesn't have a physical presence. Thoughts, concepts, ideas, stories, works of the imagination. This is the third point on the equilateral triangle. What about air, said my silent partner. That's invisible. It is, said Miss Angel, but it's a physical thing, point two on the triangle. I sniggered and jabbed my neighbour in the ribs with my own pencil. Of course, he blurted out. I'm sorry, Miss Angel, I didn't mean to. I'm... (sighs) There were many more lessons along similar lines to the geometry one. Miss Angel managed to insert countless references to the mirror into almost every area of the curriculum. One time she even managed to conduct a PE lesson themed around the concept of Eileen's Gospel of Peace to the Earthlings. Then we broke up for the summer holidays, Miss Angel left the school and that was the end of that. I grew up a bit more, moved on to high school, I carried on corresponding with Dennis from time to time. Now and again we'd chat on the phone if there was an interesting story one of us had encountered. Dennis sent me a copy of his book, Minds in the Clouds, which sat on my shelf for a long time. I'm not saying I wasn't interested in reading it. Dennis was an interesting guy, maybe the most interesting person I'd ever met. I just didn't know what to make of this weird little book he'd written about rainbow hunters. I told myself I'd get round to looking at it one day soon... But life has a habit of throwing up distractions at every available opportunity. I'm sure you've noticed this yourself, unless of course you had something else on your mind, which is understandable. I finally picked it up in the summer of 1995. I was 15 years old. The book began like this. My name is Dennis Gleeson. I am an award-winning journalist and have worked for a number of national newspapers over the course of my 20-year career. There is a sense in which these details are irrelevant to the story I'm about to tell. The reason I'm writing this book in the first place is that I never managed to convince a newspaper editor that my interest in Rainbow Hunters was a worthwhile story. They told me I was crazy. More to the point, the people I wanted to write about were probably experiencing some major mental health issues. They needed a doctor, not a journalist. The most common knee-jerk reaction seems to be that Rainbow Hunters are simply wasting their time, while the rest of us work our fingers to the bone. Watch out for this recurring theme, dear reader. Prepare yourself by asking, who decides what makes an effective use of a person's time? Is the concept of wasted time fundamentally flawed in the face of the overwhelming futility of our existence? Is wasted time just another one of those redundant terms from the capitalist machine? This is not a book about the capitalist machine. This is a book about rainbow hunters. There is no money to be made in rainbow hunting. Apparently, there is even less money to be made in writing about rainbow hunting. Still, if a friendly contact in the industry had been willing to indulge me by agreeing to a nice little spread in one of their Sunday supplements, perhaps I'd never have left my steady job at the Times in order to research these people, spend time in their company and painstakingly compose the following 80,000 words with no promise of financial reward. If a publishing house had been willing to put up the funds to support me in this endeavour, perhaps my marriage wouldn't have broken down and I wouldn't be living in a single room with a mattress and a writing desk. But why would a publishing house do something like that? Where's the money in writing about rainbow hunters? It's possible that my temporary lack of interest in getting paid for my efforts is what's given me such an affinity with the rainbow hunting community. The first thing you need to know about rainbow hunters is they aren't seeking some fabled pot of gold. Far from it. What is a rainbow hunter? A rainbow hunter is many things. On one level a rainbow hunter is simply a person who likes looking at rainbows so much they've taken it upon themselves to actively seek out this beautiful enigmatic phenomenon. For many people being a rainbow hunter is much more than a slightly unusual pastime. Anyone who hunts rainbows whether alone or as a group can justifiably identify as a member of a global community. Name any part of the world which has regular sporadic rain showers and I'll guarantee there'll be a rainbow hunter somewhere close by. The fact that you've never heard of this community is a source of frustration for myself, both as a writer and as a human being. As a reporter, I've covered countless murders. I was once paid to infiltrate a gang of human traffickers, just so I could write about it afterwards. I won an award for an investigation into the levels of raw series that get dumped into Britain's seas. I'm not saying these weren't important stories. What frustrates me is, it often seems that the only stories worth printing are the ones that expose the very worst elements of human nature. There is a case to be argued that rainbow hunters represent the very best human nature has to offer. Sure, you could argue these people aren't benefiting society in any way. They could be helping the homeless instead of driving 200 miles to gawp at a few coloured stripes in the sky. It's a fair point. But don't dismiss them until you've met them. Read on. Allow me to introduce you to the, excuse the expression, colourful characters that make up the rainbow hunting community. Who knows? Maybe you'll decide to join them. This introduction didn't exactly suck me straight in, but after a couple of chapters I was hooked. I stayed up all night engrossed in Dennis's crackling prose. I learned a lot about rainbow hunting. For a start, I learned that rainbow hunting is an actual thing. The hunters claim to have the ability to accurately predict the sites of the greatest rainbows in the country on any given day. The process involves a forensic analysis of the weather forecast. Many hunters are qualified meteorologists. The task involves isolating areas of the country which are likely to be prone to sunshine and showers. And based on the anticipated sunshine to shower ratio, I'm probably not explaining this particularly well, let's just say they have a system. Some take photographs of the rainbows they discover on their travels. Others prefer to live in the moment. Some choose to enhance their experience through the use of hallucinogens. Others strongly object to this activity, arguing that it detracts from the purity of the experience, or something. Some consider the practice of rainbow hunting to be a kind of spiritual experience. Others see the experience as an entirely non-mystical engagement with the physical world, an appreciation of the accidental beauty that exists within a godless, meaningless world. Others, just like looking at rainbows. Observing their activities, Dennis quickly established that looking at rainbows constituted only a small part of the rainbow hunting process. For many, there was more pleasure to be found in the anticipation of a rainbow's appearance than the sight of the rainbow itself. Dennis writes, Imagine spending hours in a rainy field looking up at the sky, waiting for something to happen. Sometimes the rainbow simply doesn't appear and all you've done is spent a day getting damp. Sometimes these are the greatest days. The rainbow's absence may be a disappointment of sorts but spending time with the rainbow hunter community is rarely disappointing. Oddly, Dennis had very little to say on the subject of why the rainbow hunters were fun people to spend time with. His introduction promised to introduce us to some colourful characters but the descriptions of the people he interacted with seemed deliberately vague. He spent a lot of time with a man called Martin. He described Martin as a very interesting man and left it at that. A lot of the quotes in the book were attributed to a rainbow hunter called Mary. Dennis's only proper description of this person was Mary was very eccentric and had a good sense of humour. As it turns out many rainbow hunters indulge in the parallel pastime of sunset spotting. Dennis spent four whole months during peak rainbow hunting season with a group of hunters who firmly believed the east coast of England held the greatest rainbows in the world. They also preferred the sunsets on the west coast. And so they spent their days travelling from Skegness to Morecambe and back again for weeks on end. You can be forgiven for assuming that rainbow hunters are rich kids with a ridiculous amount of time on their hands, Dennis noted. It's true, some of them are. Yet, I have met several members of the community who were essentially living hand-to-mouth, camping out, hitchhiking from site to site, while busking or selling photographs along the way to pay for food. For me, there's something deeply enviable about this commitment to the quest. At times, I wish I had that ability to fully commit myself to a single idea. I suspect that my main objective in completing this work is to challenge myself to become more like the book's subjects. There were many such quotes throughout the book in which Dennis questioned his own motivations. Clearly he wasn't writing this book because of his interest in rainbows. I hate to say it, he wrote at one point, but under normal circumstances I hardly give rainbows a second glance. Admittedly this is partly because I usually have lots of other things to think about but even when I actively engage with the process of appreciating a rainbow, Clearing my mind of all thoughts, sitting on a hillside amongst a huddle of hardcore enthusiasts, all I see is some multicoloured refracted lights, which look rather nice, but frankly I could take them or leave them. But rainbow hunters? These people really interest me. I'm yet to fully understand why. As I say, I learned a lot about rainbow hunting, but I learned even more about Dennis Gleason. The following evening, my mum caught me nodding off to sleep at the dinner table. ''Frank,'' she said. ''Oh,'' I said, blinking. ''Are you okay? she said. ''Didn't sleep last night. I was reading a book.'' ''Which book?'' ''Mine's in the Clouds,'' I said. ''You'd like it, I think.'' ''I'll take a look,'' she said. ''If it kept you awake all night, that's quite a recommendation. Looks like an early bed's in order.'' I nodded. ''I think I'll head upstairs straight after this.'' Five minutes later, I flopped onto my bed, still in my school uniform. For some reason, my alarm clock didn't wake me up the following morning. I opened my eyes to the sight of my mum, gently shaking me by the shoulders. You're late for school, she said gently. I'm very sorry. I've just woken up myself. What time is it? I groaned. Eight-thirty, she said. It's okay. I can drive you down there. If we leave soon, we should get there shortly after nine. My mum's car had been sitting untouched on the driveway for as long as I could remember. Are you okay to drive? I said. Of course, she replied. Not a problem. I hated being late for school, not because I particularly wanted to be there. I was still in the habit of avoiding drawing attention to myself. I was already dressed, so that gave us a head start. I wolfed down a slice of toast, brushed my teeth and jumped in the car. Traffic was surprisingly light, so we arrived at school for five past nine. A few minutes late, but not bad going. Then my mum almost crashed into the gates. They were locked. I peered through the windscreen at the empty car park on the opposite side of the bars. Why is it closed? I said. My mum jerked the handbrake up and wound down her window. No idea, she muttered. It's not Saturday, is it? I said. It's Wednesday, Frank, she said. So why is the school not... I opened my door, got out, and gazed up at the sky. The sun was still rising. It was June. It should have risen already, also. I got back in the car. Mum, I said. The sun rises in the east, right? I'm afraid I left my compass at home, she said sourly. You brought your watch, though, right? I did. Is it nine o'clock in the evening? Apparently so. I laughed for a couple of seconds. I'm very sorry, said my mum. It's okay, I said. I could do with some extra sleep. Let's get going. I believe the sensible thing to do would be to park the car across the street and catch the bus home. Why? I'm very tired. That's okay. We can get the bus. No problem. Thank you, Frank. Thank you for listening. If you're interested, there's the footnotes section coming up after the theme song. I can't tell you anything about it. It's only for the hardcore members of the Ragbag Alliance. Please take a look at my website, frankburton.co.uk, where you'll find The Green Room, a webcomic about celebrities in the afterlife. There's also the Ragbag Rambler video series, and much, much more besides. My other podcast is called I Like the Sound and we've got some great stuff coming up on that very soon indeed. I will see you soon. We're all alone, no chaperone can get our number The world's in slumber, let's misbehave There's something wild about you, child, that's so contagious Let's be outrageous, let's misbehave When Adam won Eve's hand, he wouldn't stand for teasing. He didn't care about those apples out of season. They say the spring means just one thing to little lovebirds. Let's misbehave. Let's misbehave. If you'd be just so sweet and only meet your fate, dear. It would be the great event of nineteen twenty-eight, dear let's misbehave <laughs> Right, welcome to the footnote section. I'm Frank Burton. How are you? How are you doing? The footnote section, also known as Frank's Therapy Tapes. <laughs> it came across slightly in the last episode that it was a bit of a therapy session for me. <laughs> and uh, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's what you want to hear. You would like to get right deep, deep down into the depths of the author's psyche and see what's there. What's rattling around in that, that old brain of yours mr burton we really want to know uh, well let's put that on the back burner for now shall we and have a look at the footnotes because uh, i think that's uh, what this section is supposed to be about and there are quite a lot of footnotes for this episode mostly from the top of the pops bit <laughs> it's worth pointing out that uh, the episode of top of the pops that was described in the episode was from as i've already stated actually 29th of june 1989 it's all available to watch on youtube if you want to check it out, it's very entertaining. Uh, I don't I don't go in for these things at all, kind of the whole nostalgia thing. Uh, that I'm not the sort of person who watches old episodes of Top of the Pops. It's not that it isn't good, because there's some great stuff. I, I watched this one uh, just because I was writing about it, and it was really entertaining. I, I really loved it. I think once you get into that whole kind of nostalgia rabbit hole, I don't necessarily think it's it's going to lead you to a good place. Uh, that that's that's my feeling on the subject I, I, i'm very resistant to nostalgia that's all i'm that's all i'm gonna say but you know if nostalgia is your thing that's cool i don't I, i'm not criticizing that at all it's just for me i don't think it's healthy and i'm getting getting right into the mental health stuff again aren't i straight away with the mental health man i don't think having that sort of mindset of spending a lot of time looking at stuff from the olden days and reminiscing on oh remember this remember that I just personally prefer to leave things where they were in the past and not go and investigate them. That being said, one thing that I do like, and I do this a lot, is kind of uh, investigating stuff from the past that I didn't experience the first time around. So when I find kind of records from the 80s or records from the 90s that I didn't hear at that time, I'm well into that, I'm well into it. That really is as close as I will get to a, a kind of a nostalgia trip, I suppose. But anyway, uh, Top of the Pops, 29th of June 1989. And uh, so, reference that. Soul to Soul, Back to Life, of course, was the number one hit record at that time. And I remember that well. Great song. That's uh, stood the test of time nicely, I would say. That section also includes uh, name checking a bunch of different. Artists from that time uh, Kylie Minogue, Morrissey, Deacon Blue, Guns N' Roses, Bross, MC Hammer, Sunita, Jive Bunny, and the Master Mixers, Michael Jackson, The Proclaimers, Prince, and New Kids on the Block. What more is there to say about, about all of these people, this motley crew here? <laughs> you can see what I'm doing. I, I can making that particular list of kind of differently contrasting artists and saying that I was into all of them because I liked music, so I liked all of these things. I remember being really into Morrissey as a, as an eight-year-old child. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was great. I used to see him on the aforementioned Top of the Pops, and I thought he was a really interesting artist, and I didn't fully understand what he was singing about. But I thought it was great, you know. Then again, I was also quite partial to Stock Aiken and Waterman. I hadn't figured out quality control at that time. I don't necessarily want to turn my nose up at Stock Aiken and Waterman, because There are certain songs of theirs that are actually pretty decent pop songs, uh, you know, in hindsight. I mean, there's there's a lot of garbage that they came out with and they just, a lot of songs that the Stock and Waterman canon of artists came out with were cover versions from the 60s, I guess, and stuff like that. They just, anything that was catchy and an easy kind of money-spinning hit for them. But, you know, they did write a lot of Songs and a lot a lot of them are terrible, but there, there were some pretty good tunes amongst them. Can't think of an example of one, but I'm sure there is one. <laughs> I'm sure there's at least one, surely. There must be. So that's that bit. I also talked about uh, some factual information about corporal punishment and the death penalty and uh, laws surrounding that. That's all true, that's all factual information, and that's very interesting. And we've been making fun of Roald Dahl, of course, which is uh, controversial, I guess. It's uh, not necessarily controversial. It's obviously quite right that I should be making fun of Roald Dahl. Uh, I didn't say anything about him that wasn't true. He he was, for example, an unrepentant anti-Semite. That is 100% true. There is no contesting that fact at all. He was an unrepentant anti-Semite. And the people who are publishing his books and the people who are making films as adaptations of his work ought to be acknowledging this and to be fair to them they are now I think there was an apology made on behalf of Roald Dahl for his racist views that he's expressed in the past and that was made I think through his surviving family which is fine that's all That's all very well for them to do that and obviously it's something that they need to do because there needs to be some acknowledgement you know you, you can't just ignore that this guy was like this and it's worth pointing out this uh, this whole Roll Doll section was written a good few months ago. And uh, shortly after I wrote it, there were some further developments in the Doll uh <laughs> world in that there was a bit of a furore about the use of sensitivity readers and certain updates that were being made to new editions of the Roll children's books in that... The sensitivity readers were flagging up potentially sensitive material in those books. And then the editors would take those notes and they would make changes to the books in order to make them less offensive, I suppose. That is a process that has been going on for a very long time. It's been going on for decades There was a big kind of uh, reaction from the usual kind of cultural commentators saying that, oh, they're trying to cancel Roldal now. They're trying to cancel Roldal What are they doing? Once again, I think I've made this comment a couple of episodes ago about, I said the exact same thing about the carry-on films. When you hear people saying, oh, they wouldn't be able to make the carry-on films today. The opposite is true. You would be able to make the carry-on films and make them much ruder than they were. So what the hell are you talking about? And once again, it is exactly the same scenario that uh, I don't want to go into a big rant about these idiots who talk about cancel culture, uh, because really, what is the point? But it just annoys me that a lot of the things that they say, the complete opposite is true. No one is trying to cancel Roldell. They are trying to do the opposite of that, which is keep his books in print so that they can sell more of them. That is the process that these editors are going through. Like I say, this has been going on for many, many, many years. If you have a look at Enid Blyton's works, way back in the 1970s, I think, the Noddy books were updated to effectively remove the Gollywog characters from those books. And Roald Dahl's books were also updated in the 1970s. I'm referring in particular to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory which I referred to in the Roald Dahl section earlier on and that was basically updated by the author himself to make the Oompa Loompa characters less racist. And uh, if you have a look at those even <laughs> the updated sections the Umpa Loompas are still still pretty racist. You know, it just it just made them slightly less racist, that's all. So it's a process, you know, it's a process of kind of keeping things relevant to a modern audience and so that they can carry on selling books. There's no real moral imperative, I don't believe. I believe it's just a marketing thing. If they leave the books as they are, parents will eventually stop buying them because if you bear in mind that uh, children's books are by and large bought by parents on behalf of their children, are they not? If parents start to feel that a book contains offensive material that they wouldn't want to show their children, they are not going to buy that book, which is why they employ sensitivity readers and that is why they continue to update children's books for a modern readership. And as I say, they've been doing this for decades, many, many years, including the works of Roald Out. I do quite enjoy making fun of other writers. <laughs> it's good fun. It's good fun. Who shall I make fun of next? Uh, well, the answer to that is <laughs> it kind of ties in with the Roald Dahl thing, because, I mean, there's a whole generation of what I see as really kind of arrogant, pseudo intellectual male writers of which Salman Rushdie is one. And Martin Amis is another. Martin Amis died recently, didn't he? There was a lot of uh, tributes paid to him in the press and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, I, I, is it too early for me to start slagging him off? He really wasn't a very good writer, in my opinion, old Martin Amis. He really wasn't. And if you look at his books, I think maybe there was something about them in the nineteen eighties that struck a chord with people, but I, I don't think they've aged well. And also, I don't think they were very good. To start off with, because just the attitude that Martin Amis had towards fiction and towards the world in general, I think, and that it's typified by a lot of that generation of male authors, middle class, male. I was going to say white, but I mean, it's, it's not about the colour, really. I mean, Salman Rushdie isn't white, obviously, and uh, he's one of them. But yeah, I think it is a distinctly male thing. Ian McEwen is another one as well. Ian McEwan's another one who's come out recently to talk about cancel culture and sensitivity realism. Just for the attention, really, just for the publicity, I, I presume that's what he's doing it for. I find Ian McEwen particularly annoying. I think partly because his early work is really good. I and mean, you look at his early short stories and stuff from the 70s. They're really, really good and I really liked them when I discovered them as a teenager and I thought, yeah, Ian McEwan, what a cool guy this Ian McEwen is. Fast forward 20 years later and he's writing kind of defences of the uh, of the Iraq war, <laughs> the uh, invasion of Iraq, which he actually did. There's a novel called Saturday by Ian McEwen, which is basically just ian McEwen having a pop at all of the people who went on the protest march uh, against the iraq war that is basically the gist of this novel saturday i wonder if he regrets writing that now i don't know i don't know what it was called but he wrote a novel about brexit um, a couple of years ago and i suppose that's fine but I don't need Ian McEwan to tell me what to think about Brexit. And also, Brexit, he's against it. OK, he, he's against it. Fine. Just writing a novel about how you're against Brexit. How is that going to help anyone? And who has ever woken up one sunny morning, looked out of the window and thought to themselves, you know that Brexit's a funny old thing. I wonder what Ian McEwan makes of it. I'll tell you how many people have done that. No one. <laughs> I don't know whether it's a good book or not. I I've just, I just can't imagine it being good. That's all. And he's just really annoying. And it, I think it just typifies that that generation of male writers who started out quite radical and challenging and anti-establishment, and have gradually drifted more and more to the right to the extent that they're now essentially. Well, he's basically a Blairite, isn't he? I mean, he was wrote this big defence of the Iraq War, wrote his uh, objections to Brexit, which I presume he's done from this sort of centre right Blairite point of view. Which it's fine if that's his point of view. It's just who's benefiting from hearing about this? Who are Ian McEwan's readership now? I don't know, but I don't care that much to find out, really. Um, so yeah, he, he's been he's been complaining about cancel culture and stuff as as uh, everyone is obliged to do who is of that political persuasion now and Salman Rushdie has also so Salman Rushdie came out when this whole Roald Dahl thing was kicking off Rushdie came out in defense of leaving the books as they are which is a legitimate point of view and I completely understand where he's coming from with that it's just that Well of course I feel bad criticizing Rushdie at all because he's been through such a horrific experience you know he's physically attacked ended up being really badly injured from it obviously he's been through this whole thing that's been going on for decades with threats to his life and all this sorts of horrible stuff that has happened to him personally because of things that he's written and as far as I can see he's dealt with it in such an admirable and dignified way that it's extraordinary and uh, it's I almost don't want to criticize him for that reason purely because of the way that he has uh, dealt with the these crises in his life he's clearly done nothing wrong and he's being violently attacked you know I really do fully support the guy in that side of his life you know it's just that I might as well criticise him as well just because I feel like he can take it you know he can take a lot It can take a lot this guy for one thing I don't I don't like his writing at all it really grates on me I don't like it he uses a lot of long words not for any particular reason other than to say oh look look how many long words I know aren't I clever Amos did that as well he was pretty terrible at it Uh, his writing style really stank of this kind of pseudo intellectualism so that's one thing also Rushdie coming out in defence of Roald Dahl is a disappointment in a way because Rushdie is in a unique position to talk about so-called cancel culture because he has been at the receiving end of real cancel culture, like really uh, horrible, violent cancel culture. And by him talking about they should leave Roald Dahl's books alone, he's kind of deliberately equating what he sees as this politically correct left-wing conspiracy with what's happened to him, which is the effects of religious fundamentalism on society. Those are two things which should not be equated together. There is absolutely no connection between so-called political correctness and what has happened to Salman Rushdie. There is no link between those two things, and yet... Every time he comes out and talks about cancel culture he's doing exactly that. I know I feel bad for criticising him as I say but it needs pointing out. I think he's going about this completely the wrong way and it's a shame because he is like I say in a unique position with which to talk about censorship and talk about the real dark forces that are causing books to be censored and instead of talking about Roald Dahl he should be looking at what is happening in his country of residence, the United States, in which hundreds of children's books are being banned from schools because they are too woke. Please correct me if I am wrong, but I believe that is happening. Like, take a look at Art Spiegelman's mouse, for example. What is the rationale behind banning that? Schools other than presumably just pure anti Semitism. Why isn't Rushdie talking about that? Presumably, it's a commercial decision, and he's not talking about that because, according to market research or whatever, his readership are quite conservative and wouldn't appreciate it. What his conservative readership would like to hear are conservative opinions and conservative values. Now, that is an assumption that I have made. Call it a conspiracy theory, if you like. (laughs) It's an assumption, I'm just assuming. I'm reading between the lines here. I get the impression that Rushdie is the same as these other guys of that generation of writers, in that he doesn't have very much to say. Martin Amis had nothing to say, from what I can gather from the books of his that I have read. He just had this kind of real sort of sneering, cynical contempt for humanity and contempt for his own characters, which is a really annoying trait. A lot of kind of male American writers have this problem as well, a real sort of contempt for humanity and contempt for their own characters. John Updike had it. Jonathan Franzen definitely does. He's really annoying, that one. <laughs> Slagging everybody off today, Anna. Having a right good rant about all these uh, literary idiots. <laughs> it's great. I'm having a whale of a time here. I'm having a whale of a time. I'm really enjoying myself here, slagging all these people off. Um, <laughs> I have, I have a, kind of a serious point to make. You know, um, I think I get the impression that Rushdie is of the same kind of mindset that Martin Amis was, in that he doesn't have a great deal to say other than look at me, anti-intelligent, anti-clever. There was one exception, the, the Martin Amos book that was really good. It was a non-fiction book about Stalin. And it was called Cobra the Dread. And it was about how Kingsley Amos, Martin's father, obviously a, a famous novelist himself, was a supporter of Stalin back in the day. And this is all about Martin kind of squaring things with his late father and trying to come to terms with the fact that his father supported this horrendous dictator. The book is a very passionate account of, first of all, Martin trying to square things with Kingsley and trying to figure out why he had these views. And also it's a passionate anti-Stalinist book. It's kind of an interesting analysis of his father's generation of kind of left-wing intellectuals, a lot of whom kind of succumbed to this Stalinist cult in Russia. Amos isn't the only person to have written about this, obviously. Um, The stuff that George Orwell was writing about it at the time was great as well. That's definitely worth investigating. But uh, yeah, Code with the Dread was was a great book because Amos had something to say. He had something real to say. He had something to get off his chest. He had a political point to make and also he had this personal uh, point to make about him and his father and that's why that really kind of worked whereas if you read his novels he's got nothing to say other than look how many long words I know look how many Latin phrases I can drop in here's how much I hate everyone look at this silly middle class little man isn't he silly and middle class and oh isn't he awful now let's contrast him with this with this working class character. Oh, uh, there's a lot to be admired with this working class character, but you know he's an idiot because he's working class. Look at him, isn't he horrible? I'm paraphrasing there, but that's basically the gist of uh, every Martin Amis novel. But anyway, this is just me gobbing off really about all these uh, all these rubbish middle class writers. Uh, they're nowhere near as good as I am. Obviously, I'm much better than all of them. Uh, <laughs> I'm joking of course but uh, I think I I will uh, I will write something about these thoughts that I've been articulating in a somewhat more coherent manner than I have done here I guess it's, it's interesting th- this footnotes bit because um last year I recorded just some thoughts that I had about Nick Cave and stuff and now I've I've written something based on those thoughts and that has gone into this new series and new book endless impossible the the words endless impossible are from a nick cave quote which we will come to we haven't come to it yet but we will come to nick cave i'll be uh, very much making fun of nick cave next uh, because that is happening later in the series so watch out for that and yeah i think we've <laughs> we've talked about all the references all the um cultural references in this episode so I hope I haven't annoyed too many people with this extended rant about literature. Well, if I have annoyed you, I apologize. you know, I, I'm just saying my opinion, man, you know, yeah, try and cancel me, bro, you know., <laughs> yeah. they'll be cancelling me next, huh? 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 <laughs> I will see you in the next episode. Thank you very much.